Every new year, there's pressure to work out, and it stops people from even starting. But starting is what matters most. So Peloton's made starting easy with up to $600 off Peloton bike purchases and two months free membership. Start moving with the Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, Tread, Row, or Guide, and thousands of classes with instructors ready to support you from day one. Shop Peloton's New Year offers at onepeloton.com slash deals. All access membership separate. Terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 63. For those of you just joining us this week, we're doing an August archive throwback series and returning to some of the earlier episodes in the catalog. This time we are going back to my conversation with Natasha Dion, who is the author of the now multi, multi award winning Grace. And it's been delightful to watch that novel win so many awards and so much acclaim, which is absolutely so earned by her hard work and her beautiful thoughts on writing. So I'm thrilled to bring Natasha Dion and the conversation I have with her back on the show. I'm sure you're going to get a ton out of it. It's incredibly inspiring, especially for those of you who have trouble making time for writing. This is definitely an episode that will speak to you. So enjoy returning to my conversation with Natasha Dion. Welcome back to the Secret Library podcast. Today, my guest is Natasha Dion. She is the recipient of the Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship and the author of the critically acclaimed novel, Grace, which is so awesome, by the way. Um, She's an attorney, writer, law professor, and creator of the popular LA-based reading series, Dirty Laundry Lit. And she was recently named one of LA's most fascinating people by LA Weekly. That is amazing. Um, She's been awarded fellowships and residencies at Yale, Breadloaf Writers Conference, Prague Creative Writing Program, Dickinson House in Belgium, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Her writings appeared in American Short Fiction, The Rumpus, The Feminist Wire, Asian American Lit Review, Rattling Wall, BODY, and other places. She has an MFA in creative writing from the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert, and she has two perfect children and a lovely husband whom she met while living and working in Kent, England. Thank you so much for being here, Natasha. Woo! Thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot wait. I've been waiting for this all week. So. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so I want to start... How I, I I didn't even get through the bio before I'm like, okay, how do you have time to write books when you have children and you're an attorney and a law professor? How does this happen? By by I don't know. I mean when I think <laughs> <laughs> when I think about if I thought about it, I just wouldn't write a single word. I'd just be tired. I'd just like, oh, I really I do all that, but it's like <laughs> Every time I hear like the descriptions, I'm like, they're talking about somebody else. And I'm just sitting here listening. <laughs> I don't know. But I write, I think, in between things, like while I'm waiting. 
So how most people are on their phones, you know, doing things, I'm writing like in between things in that same way. So like waiting for my children to pick them up from school or waiting for my case to be called in court or, you know, I get to school early and I'm waiting or waiting, you know, for my office hours. So I'm just kind of between things. It's never like... Are you typing? Are you like nattering away on your phone? Like, how are you writing while you're waiting? I'm the kind of nerd who wants to know, like, what the office supplies are. Right. (laughs) Sometimes it's writing with eyeliner. I mean, it depends. Wow. (laughs) But sometimes it's writing on my phone. A lot of of the times it's writing in the notes section of my phone. So I just, like, write and write, like, a a thought will come to me or I'll be offended by something (laughs) says or you know, just sort of finding my way. (laughs) That's amazing. I think it's really great to hear that because so many people think they have to have like a cabin where no one talks to them and they have to be left alone with nothing but coffee and and that this book will like pour out. (laughs) No, I try to do that. Virginia Center for Creative Arts was exactly that. Like I had a room, I had coffee, no one talked to me, and I didn't write a single word. Really? Yeah, nothing happened. It was too quiet. I was like, there's no children yelling. There's no, my mom is not saying, let's go to the store. You know, there's nothing. So I just, I just sat there and drank coffee. Really? Yeah. That is incredibly liberating to hear. Yeah. And then when I, but, but when I got home, I I knew what the, um, the form that grace would take. I understood what the structure was, which I didn't have before. I had like pieces of the story. And after I got back, like a day later, I woke up in the morning and I knew, you know, what, what would happen or how it would be. And I say like a lot. So that's just my Valley girl knees. They like, and then, and then like, oh my God, and I can't help it. This is me. <laughs> you got it. But I, I think that's really amazing. So it's like, just cause you're not writing like a maniac at a residency, maybe taking a space, then you get the, the book structure and your book structure is really interesting. So I can imagine that that was a big aha when that came together. Yes. Yes. I was like, that's it. That's it. Of course. You know, and some people, you know, like it and then you know a couple people are like oh it's kind of you know we're back and forth in time but it it felt right I knew it was right for this so how were you writing it originally were you just writing it in sections of scenes and then then you knew how it would all come together no I was writing it in chronological order so it was the first and then it but it wasn't it to me it wasn't exciting it wasn't how the story was supposed to be I just one of the things that fascinates me about about life anyway is dying because we all have to die, right? And it's that thing that we avoid, but also stories where people talk about, you know, if they're in a car accident or something that's really dangerous and then they survive, they always talk about that moment where their life flashes before their eyes. So I was like, well, what is that like? What do you see? You know, you don't see you, you know, washing dishes or taking out the trash. They see the big moments in their lives, like their, the wedding or the time they danced with so-and-so or their child was born. So I'm like, who selects those memories? Or are we always storing them? Like, this is that. This is your final reel right here. This is, this is material that's for that. Is it this moment right now? Like we're talking, Carolyn. I don't know what they are. So in the book, I knew I wanted 
to tell her story in a way that flashes back in her life with key moments that got her to the point where she is at the at the beginning of the book, um, and then also be able to tell another story. Yeah. So for those of you listening, I think my experience reading it is that it builds such incredible suspense because you've got two lives going, the mother and the daughter, and you're going back and forth between the mother's life reading, leading up to the daughter's birth and also her death. And then you're following the daughter, but you're jumping back and forth between the two. And so at the end of each section, you're like, <gasps> you know, <And> so <laughs> you just keep going, wanting to figure out what's going to happen next. So in that way, I think it works incredibly well if, if you wanted a lot of suspense, because I certainly feel it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So as you're writing, okay, so you're writing and you're, what kind of law do you do? I have to ask. Um, I started out doing insurance defense work. Like I wanted to save the world and fight for women's rights because, you know, I was never planning on going to law school. I was in court. I was working in radio, an intern, and one of my friends was beat up really bad and I got kicked out of the courtroom because I was trying to defend her and I wasn't a lawyer. I was like this, you know, 18 year old or whatever. And I was just That's like, amazing. No, judge, I'm she can't because she was crying and she couldn't oh. explain herself. So I was like, I know what happened and I wanted to defend her. And after the second time of me jumping up, they had me escorted out. Like, And I said, you know what? I'll never be that defenseless. So you were trying to defend her at 18 in the courtroom. Yeah. And then it did. And I got kicked out. So I was like, I'll never be that defenseless in a courtroom again to help people that I love or care about. So I went to law school. I was recruited by an insurance company and then I was doing insurance defense. And then I realized that I was like in the wrong place. I didn't know how it happened. It was like looking back, like, how am I here? Why am I doing this? This isn't about justice. It's about who bought the insurance policy you know, is who your right and wrong is. And I didn't like that. So I started working in nonprofit law, Uh um, business, and now I do criminal defense. So I do post-conviction work. So I give people basically a second chance at life, you know, to move beyond the stigma of their past. So that's all that I do. So I erase criminal records, get people off probation, pardons, things like that, rehabilitation certificates. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so what I, you you know you have tons of spare time basically right. is what you're saying. <laughs> well, those because I do them largely pro bono or for cost, you know, expenses. You know, I um, you know, I only take so many cases a year now because you're working through them kind of all year, getting all the reports to get the police reports, the statements, and so it takes so much time. And then I'm teaching law too, so it's like. So, you know, I try to balance it out. So I'm not overwhelmed by work, you know, unless somebody calls me in at the last minute and they're like, can you take this case for me? I'm like, okay, or no. (laughs) Yeah. Did you do the MFA before you started practicing or how did, I'm just trying to understand how you got this all in because I'm so inspired by it. All right. Yeah, no, I never, I never thought I would be a professional writer. I just knew I was going to. At that time, I went to work in radio, and then I was doing law school, and I thought that would be my life, law. And then, But I'd always written stories, and then just one day I had like a vision in the hallway of this story, of the opening scene. You know, oh, I, wow. So then I said, I have to write that, and then I wrote it, and then I said, okay, now what? You know, I have one scene, and then I took classes at UCLA Extension because I was like, maybe I can make it longer. It'll be a long, short story, you know, the opening chapter of the novel. And then I realized that this is actually, 
a novel. And one of my professors, Robert Evers, who's a great writer, he's just like, you should apply for this pen emerging voices thing. They might, you might get in. I don't know. So I was like, okay. So I sent it to him. I got in. Amazing. Finished that program in eight months because it's a fellowship. They give you a thousand bucks and then they train you with other like well-known writers. And then I said, I should just get an MFA. I should be like serious about this thing. And then I enrolled in UCR low residency. So I could only, you know, cause I could go away for 10 days and work, you know, and still have a job and, you know, have my family without just totally being, you know, on the edge. So <laughs> I think that's amazing. So, and then, so you did the pen emerging voices, which is incredible. And then you did that. It, was this the book that you worked on through your MFA or were you, I'm just, I'm so excited about how this all happened. Yeah. So, so it's this, it's the book that I had, but you know, in the MFA, you're not, at least for me, I wasn't really working on my own work, you know, because you're reading a hundred books or so for the program. Right. You're writing about them critically. So you really don't have time to, you know, work on your own stuff. So there's like this period of two and a half, three years where I'm just like creeping along, maybe like a chapter, maybe, maybe 10 pages, maybe. So you're not really working. The same with the EV program. So when people ask me, how long did it take to finish this, this, this book? It's like, oh, it took seven years total. But you know, you have these periods where you're in school, you're reading a lot, you're writing critically a lot, you're... So it's, you know, earnestly, it probably took three years, but yeah. But I, you a learn. a lot of time. Yeah, you learn and you grow, though, because if you're not growing. So I read somewhere, if you're not growing, if something isn't growing, you're de- it's dead. So Yeah, it's like you know. a shark. Yeah. They're not moving. <laughs> I know, if they're not swimming, they're gone, they're drowning. <laughs> so then somewhere along the line, you started um, Dirty Laundry, which is really amazing. So what's the story of, I know that it started back in 2011 and that you wanted to create community for writers in LA, but how did, how did that happen? I just returned from Brett Loaf Writers Conference and I met with the waiters there. You know, we go through a lot of different things. People kind of come into this discovery. People have different things to say about about Brett Loaf. I loved it because of the people and the relationships that I was able to to build there. And I just felt like they were diamonds and I wanted to bring them to LA. Oh my God, we got to do a reading together. Wouldn't that be so cool? <laughs> but um but one of my friends before I came up with the um before I decided I wanted to really do it one of this writer that I loved, who was also at Brett Loaf that year, came and read at Book Soup. And there was only like, and I got there like super early because I loved her. And I thought, surely everybody loves this writer. It's going to be packed. So I went there and it was me and my husband. And I remember we got there maybe 30 minutes, an hour early. And we were like putting our bags and stuff on chairs and like scoping it out. And then it was like 30 minutes still time, 15 minutes still time. And then it was time and she's there and nobody's there except for me and my husband. Oh, no. I know. And I thought, you know what? This should never happen to any writer. You know, you work so hard on something, whether it's going through the MFA or the years that it takes to put into this piece. It's your life. And nobody shows up for the party. I said, I want when people come to L.A. to be I want them to be celebrated. I wanted that writer to be celebrated every time. And I was fortunate, so we so I pitched it to Penn Center USA, and they said, "Yeah, we want to do different spaces because I didn't want to do it in a library or at a school or at a coffee shop. I wanted to be, you know, interesting and engaging for 
people who might consider themselves to be non-readers. So I didn't want it to be just us, right? I want it to be everybody coming out to celebrate this writer. So the first time we had 70 people come out, um, the next time it was like 100, and now we're up to about 200 people that come. Yay. Yay, it's like standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. We have posters with the writer's names on them, glow sticks, and Jeff Ayers, who's an amazing comedian who just brings it all together. He's the priest of Dirty Laundry. He's nice. Like, <laughs> he like brings it together. It is so great. It's so much fun. I can't yeah. wait for the next one. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, I'm like mapping it out now. I, like I want to be present for it. Yeah. You know? So that's very exciting. I think that's true because I think a lot of people have this view of literature today as like a bunch of people. Granted, I'm wearing glasses right now, but like a bunch of people who are like very buttoned up and in glasses and kind of finger shaking and you know, right, really uptight, kind of not inclusive. Exactly, exactly. And and I was also finding that a lot of reading series that I went to is like the same people that you would see at the next reading series or the next one. So I also wanted to include people who were brand new, who've never read on a stage before and people who maybe others didn't really know, you know, so it, and it makes it fun, you know. So how do you how do you find people submit? I mean, I see you can submit on the site, but what is your criteria for picking people when you read something? You're like, ooh, this is going to be good. Right, right. So I, so somebody who's really good and, and also somebody who gives to the community, volunteers somewhere. Because we get so many submissions now, it's just hard to, to, you know, to get everyone. And so try to be fair. You know, I want, I'm very service minded. You know, my whole life is, you know, serving the community or serving wherever I am, whatever community, whether it's law or at my school. So, and it's, and because that's the only criteria that I can really, you know, think of, I'm like, oh, do you volunteer at 826 LA? Do you volunteer at Penn Center USA or at your local food pantry? You know, stuff, things like that. But also to be good and also to be service minded. And that's what, that's what I think is most valuable because a lot of people are really good and can really read. Um, but, you know, literature doesn't work like that. The community, you know, it's easy to show up and be great but it's hard to give back. So that's kind of my emphasis or my heart in doing dirty laundry. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I think it is, it's really easy to think about books and literature and writing as like an ivory tower pursuit. Like yeah. <laughs> you got to be alone and you got to be really like isolated and protected and you can't, you know, be connected to anybody else. But at the same time, um, when we had Julia Callahan on from Rare Bird, she was saying the most important thing for people's book success is community. Yeah, yeah. I 110% believe that. <laughs> A hundred, like what, like you're, um, like this podcast, you know, you're giving to the community and giving to people who are looking for information, like how do I do this thing? To me, that's giving, that's, that is volunteerism and service. And you have to be like that, not so you can get something necessarily, um, but to create a sort of community, a real community, which is give and take, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. But there are people who join the community so they can get this thing later. But, you know. Hopefully that's not always the case. But I, I, I do. I think that there is. It, we're all better off if more people are able to write books. Yeah. 
Yes, yes. And to show that perspective, I recently read an essay by a guy who grew up with a super religious family and he was gay and he went and they put him in conversion therapy. Oh, no. And he wrote about he wrote about that experience, but then he also said something that I'd never heard before, which was our whole society is conversion therapy, is trying to get people to come out of this thing. He says, so the whatever the two weeks or the month that he spent in that program is nothing compared to his whole life of living in a society that wants you to be a certain way. So I just, things like that are so eye-opening to me, and we need those voices, you know, mine and yours and and all of us to really understand what it is we're doing and make bring us closer together. It's true. I mean, there is a big, I think that that happens a lot around creativity too. Like as I work with people who want to write and there's, there's so much um, in terms of preconceived notions about what writers are like or what you have to be like or what you have to do or what experience you have to have in order to be a writer. Mm. Um, did you find any of that? Like, cause you're like, I'm a lawyer. Um, how can I be a writer at the same time? Or what kind of beliefs did you have about being a writer that you maybe had to struggle with? Or maybe you didn't. Yeah, no, I, I completely, I didn't call myself a writer until like after the pen emerging voices program. And it was still really hard to say it, you know, cause it was like, Oh, and then I published in the rumpus and I was like, okay, maybe now is that moment. But no, but people will say often, like, because I'm a lawyer, they'll say, oh, there's a lot of lawyers that are writers, you know, but nobody says there's a lot of so-and-sos that are writers. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but it's hard for everyone, I think, to come into that moment where they're saying, I'm a writer. I think, you know, it's, I don't know, it would be the same as saying, I'm beautiful, to look at yourself naked in the mirror and say, I'm beautiful in the same way, you know, as saying, okay, I'm a writer, you know, especially if you do other things and you're often as a writer, you're doing other things, whether, you know, I have, my work is as a lawyer and a teacher, but there's a lot of teachers. There's a lot of people working in restaurants. There's a lot of people taking care of their parents. There's so few people just get to sit there and be a writer, you know, put in that kind of time. So I think it's a, yeah, that to me is one of the most fascinating and sad and frustrating things is how hard it is for creative people to identify as the thing they do. Right. Like I was talking to somebody recently who's a painter and who was saying, well, maybe I might want to have a gallery show. And I said, okay. And she's like, I don't want to be full of myself and say I'm all great, but I don't, maybe I'll have a gallery show. And I said, but isn't that what painters do? I mean, that's kind of like a lawyer saying, maybe someday I might want to go to court. Like, I'm not trying to ask too much of the world, but I'm like, why do we make it so hard on creative people? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That is so great. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with us. I don't know because we have to accept a certain reality. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't know. And it seems like there's a part of that that's ego, too. Like, you feel like if I confess that, I, you know, it's an ego problem. And everybody writes in some way, you know, whether it's an email, a text or something. So what makes me say that I am writer, you know, when everybody writes, you know, like my mom's like, yeah, I do that. Or everybody says, I'm writing a story. Oh, my friend self-published this. You know, or whatever. Like, everybody's writing in L.A. It's everybody's writing a screenplay. So you feel like 
can I just grab that name and make it me? I, can I do that? Is that kind of obnoxious? I don't know. So I always feel like the people who are the most hesitant to grab the title are the ones who deserve it the most. Oh, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good thought. That is a that is an interesting thought. I don't I don't know. I haven't known anyone except for like in high school when people say I'm a writer or I'm a poet or whatever. Then they say it, but not really adults. I haven't met anybody who just came out like, yes, I'm a writer. And then it jumps from writer to author. I'm an author. Oh, nice. <laughs> but that's when you're you know, when you already have something out. But when you're getting there, it's that point of conversion where you just sort of grasp that title. I don't know. I know it's, it is a challenge. I mean, I think as you're, you know, how did it feel the difference between publishing something that Rumpus are doing the emerging? I mean, amazing to me that somebody can win emerging voices, which is a really big deal and be like, maybe, maybe, um, maybe I might be a writer. It's just amazing. Um, but how was it to have, you know, a book in your hands that you wrote? Did that change your feelings about being a writer? That's got to be intense. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I cried obnoxiously and ugly. It was terrible because they they had flown me to Denver to this thing called Winter Institute where all the independent bookstores are. And they handed me the galley and I'm, I just got, oh, you got the galley in public. Yes. That's and intense. I'm sitting there at this table with these booksellers who I just met not even 30 seconds before who didn't, you know, it's enough to say, hi, I'm going to talk. Hi. Hello. Hello. I sit down and, and somebody who I just met also just hands me the galley. Oh, here's your galley that we, and I just like, <laughs> it was like, it was so terrible. It's so embarrassed, like snot and tears and these strangers staring at me and everybody's like, that's okay. And I, and I couldn't like stop myself. I was like trying to swallow like why just, it was just terrible. And I just, I just sat there. So you should never get a galley in public yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm, a friend of mine who um, she was on the show as well. When she got her first galley, she just like freaked out and started screaming because it came in the mail from her publisher and her husband thought somebody had died like he came downstairs there was all this crazy you know I'm like oh my god to do that in front of strangers that's just not nice they shouldn't do that to you it's not I know it was like an emotional roller coaster and when my books actually came and I held my book my husband gave it to I just sat there and I was totally silent for a good half hour and I didn't know what was wrong I couldn't explain I don't know so I'm not sure how you're supposed to behave but I I had I did not have it I did not I did not do any of it right I was like there was no graceful way to do anything it was not like I imagined I thought I was going to be happy jumping around but that moment it was silence and the other time I was just not ready <laughs> I mean after seven years and it is not you know it's a it's a tough story yeah. To live inside of that story for seven years. Yeah. Is intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how is that? I mean, that is a heavy, heavy topic to write about. And there are a lot of horrible things that happen to these characters. Mm -hmm. So I'm always, because I have a problem where whenever I have written, which is, you know, a lot, but nothing I'm very proud of. I can't get three <laughs> characters in a scene to talk to each other. That's something I have trouble with. Right. And I, I, I like, I'm gun shy at having anything bad happen to them. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
when I was in the Pin Emerging Voices program, one of the one of our what they call a master class um, instructors was Ellen Slezak or Slezak S L E Z A K, and she was saying that once you she says you take your characters, you put them up a tree, and then you start throwing rocks at them, Ooh. and that. <laughs> And that was sort of the analogy. I was like, you could do that? And she says, yeah. I was like, okay, I could do that. But I didn't mean for it to go the way that it went in this story. Um, But it was just, it was important for me to create something that was real and raw and so that people could really see it. How much do you think about your work or how much did you think about what you see in the courtroom and what happens in terms of, you know, criminal justice work as you were working on the book? All of it, all of it. Yeah. All of it bleeds into there because even as I represent my clients who are defendants who have committed crimes and some of them are similar to this, I think about, you know, the victims because I also represent victims in abuse cases, but most of my work is with people who have already done these things. I think about how can you do this to another human being? You know, it's humanity, but also what is mercy? What is grace and what is justice? Um, So I think about that a lot and it's in the story. So things that I've seen. So I haven't made up like the violence and all the violence in this book are based on real things that have happened. Because, you know, you can't imagine some of those things, but also these are things that are happening every day to people and we're so removed from it. You know, people in the courtroom and police officers and all, that have to deal with it are there. But most people, for the most part, are removed from these very real realities um, and victims often don't show up, you know, to testify like the Brock Turner case. What was so big about that? I don't know if people realize that is when she wrote her statement about being unconscious and these things happening to her and what that meant, victims rarely show up or show up again. You know, they don't want to come. And if they're young children, their parents want to just be done with it. So, you know, they're usually settled on some deal. It's aggravated battery, maybe sexual battery, you know, so I don't know. All these things haunt me and I carry them. And it's, and people have said, you know, grace is haunted. I'm like, I know I, I've had to carry these things. I know these are the things that haunt me, like how people can do this to each other. And in slavery, when they, you know, when this was like normal to rape, you know, women who they didn't see as women or people like, how can you, how can you do that to this pregnant woman? She, she's a woman like, all women, you know, forever. We've all wanted something. We've all fallen in love. We've all, we want to survive, you know, but there you're just treated as just an animal to be, not that it's just an animal. You shouldn't hurt animals either, but, um, you know, I wanted to make it real. I wanted her to be real from a woman's perspective. Um, And I hadn't seen a lot of that. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense because it does feel so visceral, the book. And I think it's easy for us reading about historical periods of time, like slavery and, and to think, oh, that was back then. And aren't we so much better now? And, you know, and, and to sort of distance ourselves a little bit from what still happens to people and how people are still treated badly. And people like, you know, if we have a a society that's trying to force people not to be gay or force people to be different than they really are. That I think that is, it feels so, um, I don't know. It really informs me as a reader, 
knowing that it was present references that were, I mean, of course it always is yeah. because as a writer, you can't travel in time yet. So <laughs> right. we, haven't, we haven't figured that out. You can't like go back and take notes, right. but, um, but that it does feel very alive in a way that I think a lot of people approaching historical subjects, I haven't felt that there always feels like it's a little bit further away from me as I'm reading than it does in this book. Right, right. You know, American slavery, we were in it, you know, depending on how you calculate it, you know, 250 years to 400 years. But even at 250 years, we as Americans haven't been out of slavery for as long as we were in it. So a lot of us treat slavery as an event, but it was actually our culture. It was like every day, like right now, like going to get a coffee, you know, there it is, you know, for 250, that's generations and generations of people. And at the end of slavery in 1865, 3 million slaves were set free. It wasn't like a few slave hands, you know, that were just like, okay, bye-bye. You know, like it's sort of minimized, but 3 million people just walking away or staying or doing whatever. Um, so that was fascinating to me. And I wanted to put us there again so we can see, use that as a lens that a lot of, you know, African-American people are experiencing now, but also the sort of systems we've created that we're based on. We, we still have these systems that are running differently, but they're still here. You know, that, that engine is still here and different people are on it at different points. Um, but that's what I wanted to show and how we think we still talk about immigration you know, immigration is still a big deal, which is in the book. We still talk about women's rights to own our body. Like, how are we valued? Um, like, you know, virginity versus chastity. You know, all these things that we think about. Why can a man do this and I can't do this? Or, you know, all that is, I wanted to put it in there because it's always been. Yeah, and we, I think it's easy for us to kind of I think this is what we do when things are really difficult is to sort of start putting them in separate boxes because like you can handle a smaller box right. to think about how women's rights is connected to slavery is connected to the idea of owning another person. And what does that mean? And, right. you know, women's rights and voting and all of these and people having a say in their own lives. Right. All of that is connected. Yeah. And it's, we're still asking ourselves that. So that's what I wanted to do with Grace. I wanted to say, you know what? We're, we think we know history, but we need to change the questions that we're answering. Like what you just said, you know, can we own our own bodies? We, You know, there's a group of people who didn't, you know, for a long time. And now, and women, you know, we still, I read an article the other day too, because I love reading essays about a woman who takes pride in asking permission from her husband to do things, you know, and which is cool if that's your relationship, you know, if that's how you feel. But there's that mutual respect that should be there, too, where it's a conversation. It's not a permission. It's not an ownership. It's a it's something else. Yeah, if it's checking in and you've decided as a couple, like, let's check in about certain decisions yeah. and we both do it. Yeah, yeah, you know, and changing the language and how important language is to our society. You know, like, I don't know if I'd use the word permission. It would be like checking in. Yes, I could. of course I'd do that. Checking in yeah. is great. Yeah, but, you know, when I... So like permission, I'm like, mm, maybe, maybe hell no. No, <laughs> Exactly. Mm, that's the wrong, wrong word. Um, no, <laughs> you need not so much. Yeah, but checking in is definitely, and it doesn't show a lack of respect. But I, I love, I love language. I think it was um, Toni Morrison who said, "I love the English language because it can do anything." 
Mm. And we do that with language. So in changing the way we understand it, and as writers, we have this opportunity to to retell our stories in a way that's not, you move from permission to checking in, which is, okay, got it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many words for the same thing. I mean, English has so many words. Yeah. So we have so many choices we can make about the meaning we want to communicate, mm-hmm. which I love. I'm curious, so you were working in Kent, England and met your husband. Is he English? Yeah, he's English. He, well, so what does he think about all that? I'm just curious about somebody who's from outside of this country. I'm assuming he's read the book, obviously. Yeah. I'm curious about what somebody from outside of this culture who knows you intimately, how did he experience this whole process? Not that you can totally speak for him. Right, but. right. No, <laughs> no he, he has been amazing. I mean, he was one of the first supporters. He's the one who said, you have to keep the ending like that. Like I changed the ending of the book. And he was like, no, no, you take it back. This is terrible. You know, he's, so he's been there all along and he's funny. And even in dark times, you know, that dry humor that English people have, I try to put oh, yeah. some of that in there. So you're laughing and kind of feel, feeling guilty, but you know, things that I thought were funny. Um, but he's been really supportive because he's the kind of person who believes, you know, in telling the truth and getting to, you know, what does it mean to be just? So we're so much on the same page about things that we live, not that, that goes beyond an issue level, but just the big idea. What are you trying to do? What is it that you want to do? Like love, truth, all those things. Because the way that our society is, especially with election season coming around, you know, we focus on these events, these happenings, but there's a bigger picture. Are we really that, are we really that separate? Are we not understanding the big issues like, you know, a person's right to choose about their body or, you know, things like that. Freedom. What is freedom? What does it mean? And which is something I cover in grace, like for a woman who's divorced, freedom could be that divorce or freedom could be having a job. Um, Freedom it's not always physical, you know, it could be mental, you know, I don't think that I'm worthy. So the freedom to say, I, I'm valuable, you know, so I wanted to explore freedom in different ways, starting with, uh, you know, a very clear slavery where people are actually physically in bondage, but then move it on to the bondages that we have in our minds that keep us from being who we're supposed to be. I think that was really clear particularly, I mean, there are lots of moments where people are sort of deciding what's possible for them in the book. But the point when the Emancipation Proclamation comes through, and there's all those people lining up and like, which way do we want to go? And then Charles says, well, I guess we better get back to work. Um, Oh, it's just like, you know, having waited for this point, and then somebody telling you, nope, not around here, we're not going to uphold it, that, you know, there were so many more of them there. Yeah. And that the power of just saying, no, this isn't happening here was enough to put people back in such a lifelong experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, yes. And because I think that's everything to me, that's every decision that we make because, and also because we as a nation are losing, or we were for a time losing our voice. And even now we have this two party system we're saying, what do we think about this issue? What do we think? And there's somebody who will tell you what we think about this right. issue instead of what do I think about this issue using my worldview, which includes this, this, this. 
there's a very much, we don't like this person or we like this person or we, and then you're like, wait a minute, I kind of don't like that, but okay, if we like it, you know, and we, <laughs> and we, I signed up to be on this side, right? so I'm just going to go with it. Right, right. So it's, it's, and it reminds me sort of when this was years back when Bill Clinton signed the thing about domestic partnerships. It was like, okay, we got that. So it's all, it's all okay. We don't need marriage. We got this. But there was a group of people who said, no, we want to push it further. But look how many years it took. It to, took so long. Yeah, to get the, you know, to get the financing and the footing to be able to come up and say, no, this is what we, we deserve equal, right? But there's, you know, we have to start, and I, here I am saying we, but people have to start asking questions of themselves. What is it that I want? And maybe it's not always the we answer to that, you know? And I have, in everybody's worldview, you know, we're going to think a little bit differently, so. Yeah, the we can be comforting and protecting, mm -hmm. but it's also dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it tends to smooth out any rough edges of people who think differently or want to do things differently. And that can be people who want to say I'm a writer or yeah. people who are trying to control their own lives or take a stand for something that's maybe slightly different. Yes, yes, yes. So it takes you back to that question you asked, you know, do I have to look a certain way to be a writer? Do I have to go to certain things to be a writer? Can I be a writer at home, I'm a mom with a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Can I write like this? Do I have to? It's however you, how the hell ever you want to be who you are and be, you know, to do you. And so I'm kind of anti-we in that way as it keep, gets away or takes away from our individualism. Yeah, I think the only thing that makes you writer is if you're writing. There you go. Drops mic. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Like if you're writing, you're a writer. It's just, I think it's like the, the little W versus the big W that, that trips us up. Right. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't, you know, nobody is better than, you know, you're not better. You just have to keep working at it. Whatever it is, you just have to keep working at it. Exactly. I mean, it's like, as long as we are deciding that somebody outside of us gets to define whether we are something or not, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yep. Yep, exactly. So that moment where all those slaves are there, hundreds of them, and those six, whatever, five or seven plantation people. Who right, say, five dudes. Get back to work. And they're like, okay. You know, that's how yeah. much they can control you when you've been beaten down or where, you, where you've been abused or you don't have that confidence. Someone with that little power can tell you where you belong and it's not here with us. And you have to know that you have all this power because all you have to do, like you said, is pick up a pen and write or type and write and you've done it. You've overcome that. Yeah. So everybody should start writing immediately. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're taking from this one. Even if it sucks, just keep going. <laughs> yeah. So are you working on something else now? Yeah. Well, I, I started writing something, but I don't know. I don't know if it'll take. I don't know if it'll yeah. take. I want to be, I want it to be inspired and, you know, all the things we want, but I just keep writing scenes and I don't know how it'll come together. And I'm okay with that now to not have direction, just sort of write this thing. It worked before. It did. It did. <laughs> well, how is it? I mean, you got a review and a really good review. 
I must say, in the New York Times, which we'll put in the show notes. It's a badass review, I must say. So how did that, did that like galvanize you to jump into something else or was it, how did that impact you going forward? Yeah, I didn't, I found out on the Thursday before that it came out that they were going to do a review. And I said, okay, what does that mean? I called my editor, Dan. I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so wait, what? I was like, (laughs) and I was like, he goes, it's okay if it's bad, it's okay, you know? (laughs) You know, he goes, well, not quite those words, but I was just like, okay. So, and then it came out, it was supposed to come out on Monday and then it was out on Sunday night. And then I was just like, so every time, every sentence I read, I was waiting for the shoe to drop. It was scary, my heart's racing. And then it was really great. And I was just like, I was just amazed, but now it's, I don't know how I'm supposed to react. Like nobody has told me, oh, this is how, what happens when you get a New York Times, or this is how you feel, or this is, it didn't, I don't know. It feels like all these great things, whether it's New York Times or people or whoever, I feel like it's happening to someone else who I really like. Like a good, like a good friend of mine, who I'm like, go girl, yeah, ooh, yeah, great for you. But it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's happening to me. It feels mm. like I'm watching it happen to someone else, and I'm just happy for her. And then so in that way, there's a distance, and I don't know why I do that. I try to inhabit it, but yeah, and maybe it's a thing like being called a writer or not. Yeah, it's like, well, then I'll be over here and maybe I can like move over here sometimes. Of course, nobody can see me. I'm like doing weird dance moves. <laughs> but like you're, it's like on the other side of the room. And maybe I go to that side of the room sometimes, but I'm not going to be over on that side of the room all the time. Exactly, exactly. Because you still have to write. You still have to show up places. If people are like, oh, it's so great. And I remember when I first started writing, I used to travel a lot for work. They used to be in airports and go to the airport um, bookstores. And so, and when, and now that I'm traveling like on book tour and I'm flying everywhere, I always go to the bookstore and I don't see Grace. And that's, you know, so I'm like, oh, so I'm like, no, but it's great because I'm like, see, it's not, this isn't really happening because oh. if it's really happening. It would be here. It would, <laughs> so... <laughs> So in that way, it's like a way to kind of check your ego and be like, or check anything that this is real. It's not real because it would be here. Uh, it's so interesting how we do that. I mean, that like, I'm sure that many of us listening, I mean, I'm listening to you too, but it, anyone listening, it's like, okay, if I got the Penn Emerging Voices Fellowship, or if I got reviewed in the New York Times, then I would have made it. But it's like our little nasty critical <laughs> minds are like, well, your book is not in the airport. I know. You know it's not in the Walden books in Atlanta. So therefore, <laughs> you're not you're not there yet. Yes. Sorry, girl. Yes. We're moving the bar. Yeah. It's like, why why do we keep moving the bar on ourselves? It's so rough. I don't know. But maybe it's the creative mind. And it's the only way that I think it's not really, I can't accept it yet. And I can't... Uh, I don't know that I want to at this point. You know, I feel, I don't know. I don't know. There's so much work to do. And I just feel like, you know, people will often ask me, do you, you know, you deserve this. Or they'll say that you deserve this for, I don't know, being a good person. I don't know how these things, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it always, if I'm honest, it, it confuses me. It not confuses me. I just feel like, um, I don't know. What's the word It's the first time I heard that, I'll give this example, was when that, you know, the crocodiles just yanked that little boy from his dad at yeah, Disneyland. Yeah. 
And I was like, that is a terrible, ter- I cannot imagine standing with either of my t- two children and for that happening. I would be drowned in that water. At least that's, that's what I think. I'm, I know this dad did everything he could. But I'm like, nobody deserves that bad thing to happen to them. And I feel sometimes that way, that's that nagging thing that says, I feel like I don't deserve this more than anybody. There's so many good books out there that might not get read or might not get celebrated like this. So it makes me afraid to say, I deserve this. Like I've done something Mm. to deserve it because I don't want to deserve that bad thing either. You know, I don't, you don't deserve that. So, but I appreciate what they're saying in that compliment. But I always have that moment where I'm like, I'm just grateful. That's the bottom Mm -hmm. line. I can't say that. I just feel like it's a blessing. It's a gift. And I want to be able to do something great with it in the future. Like I want to be able to help people in however this thing is going to play out, wherever this roller coaster goes, you know, and I'm here with you and I get to yeah, spiritual gangster right in front of me. Yeah. I could see you on the screen. Do they not see you? No, they don't see me, but I am wearing my spiritual gangster t-shirt. Right. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's amazing how it opens up conversation, like risking that and putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you did with this book because now we get to read it and it's so good. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm I'm so delighted that we got to talk. And I guess my last question is, what are you reading now that you like? Oh, I, I always put people on the spot with this one, which is not nice, but okay. no, there's two books. Okay. One, because I like, I, I need humor. I need to, oh, yeah. you know, have fun and laugh. So there's this book called Penguins with People Problems and, nice. <laughs> and it's by Mara Laura Philpot. And I met her when I was in um, Mississippi this weekend and I read her book and I was crying, laughing. No doubt. It is like nice. a little, like you could read one thing a day and you're, and you're laughing all the time. Awesome. her book because they're just illustrated by her and she says yeah I'm not an artist I know it looks like a four-year-old druid or something like that it's just so funny because they are really having people problems and I love it <laughs> it's so cute and then I'm reading um Caitlin Greenidge's book we love you Charlie Freeman which is an amazing book and it's set you know like in the 70s I want to say 70s 80s and it's just a beautiful book about family um and it, it, you know, it takes a turn and I love stories about family or connections, relationships. And it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on. I'm so thrilled to connect with you and to hear about all that went into this book, which is such a beautiful thing. And I hope everyone will read it. Oh, thank you so much. And you're so awesome for inviting me. Thank you. <laughs> of course. You're awesome for coming on. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.